Hi everyone, this is Lee. I'm here with Bob and Jerry. <clears throat> we are One New Man Ministries, an Ephesians 2 ministry, a ministry of reconciliation, Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles. That's Christians, believers in Jesus Christ. Yeshua HaMashiach is our salvation and Savior. And we study the Old Testament from a point of view of Yeshua and that it's his story and God's revelation for his path of salvation. So as Ephesians 2 says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So what are we going to study today, Jerry? Our Torah portion picks up uh, the story of Joseph where we left off. And before we get into that, let me say good morning again to you guys and to all of our listening audience. We're so glad that you are with us. Uh, for our Jewish friends, uh, we've just finished uh, the Feast of Dedication. Uh, it's been an exciting time to uh, light the candles and remember how God delivered us from oppressors, uh, Antiochus uh, in this case, and uh, need, needing to pray again for God's deliverance of the Jewish people. Uh, but the lights that we light each night remind us that light has come into the world. And as uh, New Covenant followers of Yeshua, we, we know that light has come into the world, not just in the form of political liberation, but in the form of spiritual liberation, what Yeshua came to bring us. Uh, he entered the world uh, as light. John tells us that the light could not overcome or, or the darkness could not overcome the light, and his light is the life of each one of us. And so we praise God that uh, in his mercy and his grace, uh, when we talk about salvation, Paul frames it this way in one place. He says, he delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so Hanukkah is a good reminder of all that. So uh, our, our Torah portion today, again, uh, as I said, uh, picks up the story of Joseph. Uh, we left him uh, last week. He had uh, interpreted the dreams of the uh, of Pharaoh's two servants, the cupbearer and the baker. He had properly interpreted them. Uh, he asked the cupbearer to remember him to Pharaoh, uh, but he did not do that. And so our Parsha opens up today in Genesis chapter 41 that it was two more years of Joseph in prison before this next sequence of events. So, so the Parsha is uh, those famous dreams that Joseph had, uh, or I'm sorry, that Pharaoh had, that Joseph interpreted, the dreams of the seven fat cows and the seven skinny cows, the seven good-looking uh, stalks of grain and then the very se seven sickly stalks of grain and Joseph was able to interpret those correctly uh, he is appointed by Pharaoh then to manage the the program and uh, the story unfolds in such a way that he has to uh, meet his brothers again uh, they're in dire circumstances and we're gonna see how he handles that situation um, the Parsha is coupled with the story of Solomon uh, where two women uh, get in an argument over whose baby this is. And that's a pretty famous story our listeners are probably familiar with. The uh, placement of that story with this one leads us to a conclusion about what maybe one of the primary themes is here, because what Solomon does in that story is uh, just before the story of the two women and the baby, he had prayed to God, and God said, ask for whatever you want and I'll give it to you, and Solomon prayed for wisdom, if you recall. And so this story follows his request, and it is meant to demonstrate the godly wisdom that he now possessed since he had asked for it. The 
people who decide the New Testament portion clearly saw the connection on the basis of wisdom uh, because the New Testament portion that they assigned was uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And that is a discussion of the application of wisdom uh, through the preaching of the gospel. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3 have an awful lot to say about wisdom. And so I think somewhere in our conversation we're going to have to talk about wisdom and uh, see what the scriptures say about wisdom because this is a strong theme that comes through in these three passages is the wisdom of God. And it is clearly set in uh, an opposing place from the wisdom of the world. There is godly wisdom and there is the wisdom of the world. We'll get into that as we go along. Um, the other uh, theme that comes through here too then is a question of justice. There's the question of justice that Joseph will have to deal with in his own uh, dealings with his brothers. Uh, there's clearly a question of justice that Solomon has to deal with when he hears the story of these two women. Uh, he will have to come up with a just solution. And justice is the question of treating each person in the righteous way that they deserve. Okay? So justice is always, biblically speaking, meted out along the lines of God's righteous standard. It's not arbitrary. It is clearly lined up with uh, what God decrees as being right and wrong. And then justice is giving to each person what is the right thing from God's perspective. So this leads to those kinds of things in the law where, where, where Moses writes, uh, you know, don't show any partiality to the rich or the poor, right? So justice demands that in this case, this person did this, this person did this, and the law says this. God's standard says this, and this is how we are to make our judgments. So both of those themes are, are available for us to talk about at some length as, as we go through here. So uh, before we get going, anything you guys want to jump in with? I just uh, want to add that it seems like testing the heart is also a similar uh, a, a theme here because Joseph is testing the heart of his brothers. Solomon is testing the heart of these two mothers to see which one will allow the baby to be sliced in half and which one will say, no, let the other one take it. And even, you know, in, in the, in the uh, First Corinthians chapter 2, when Paul says he's coming, what does he say? He says that, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It seems like what he's preaching, because he says in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he's really saying there that the wisdom of God is our need for salvation mm -hmm. through Jesus Christ and him crucified. Mm -hmm. and, and that is the ultimate justice as well, right? Mm -hmm. And that is also the testing of our heart. So maybe that's yes. how it all comes together. Yeah, absolutely. The the heart is in the crucible. Uh, how 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 is it going to prove uh, out uh, one way or the other? Maybe maybe the place to really uh, dig in for a minute is in this First uh, Corinthians passage. What do you think? Yeah. Let's let's take a look at at, at that, and then we can maybe come back and talk about the the parsha in that light. Second Corin or First Corinthians chapter two uh, is the assigned portion, but actually the subject of wisdom has uh, come up earlier in chapter one. So I want to go back um, 
to chapter 1, uh, verses 10 through 17 uh, is Paul's, I want to say denunciation, <laughs> uh, certainly correction of the Corinthian church and how they had uh, broken the unity of the Spirit by adopting different factions in the church. Uh, some say I'm of Paul, some say I'm of Cephas, that's Peter. Some say I follow Apollo, some say I follow Christ. So we have all of these different factions and Paul corrects them. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Uh, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Uh, he, he, he takes that whole thing apart. He says, you know, your factions are all wrong. It's, it's Christ, it's all Christ. Verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but uh, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, and here, here comes wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So this is, this is the, the real uh, crux of the issue right here, is the cross is the central event of history. It is God's final and ultimate act of redemption. Uh, salvation you know his name Yeshua means salvation we've been talking about how from the very beginning the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent and all of these intervening centuries of, of God's people rising and falling of different people uh, coming to the surface and then not proving to be the one now we're here and he says I want to focus on that thing and that make that the focus, not my, my flowery language, my, my great rhetoric. I want to uh, come at you not with eloquent words, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. The simple message of the cross. God was in the Messiah, reconciling the world to himself. God sent his son to be the sin bearer and pay the penalty for your sin that you might be delivered through this cross event. Now he will go on and, and put the, what is that, the, 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 the bow on the, on the package at the end in chapter 15 uh, by talking about the resurrection because the cross event uh, separated from the resurrection, you don't have a complete salvation. But here, for sure, we've got to start with the preaching of the cross that the Messiah, the God-man, the thing that none of us could have ever conceived, was crucified, was put to death in the most degrading, disgusting manner that was reserved for the worst of the criminals, the God-man who had never sinned, who nobody could find any fault that he had done who did not deserve death of any sort, let alone the death of a cross. And yet here he is crucified because this is how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit from before the foundations of the world had ordained it. Right? Right. It, is that justice? What do you mean? I mean, I, I think it would be easy to say that how can a person, a man, the man God without sin being crucified for the sins of all the world, how can that be considered justice? That seems like the biggest injustice ever. So it would be unjust if he had not taken upon him the sin of the world. God was not punishing Christ directly, Messiah directly, but for becoming the sin bearer, he has to bear, he bears the punishment of the sin. So the justice of God, is, Paul says this in, in uh, Romans chapter 3, God did it this way that he might maintain his justice. He cannot just wink at sin and pass it over so that God may be just as well as the one who justifies those who put their faith in Yeshua. There was no 
Well, I can't say there was no other way that God could have done this, but what I think we can say is this is the way that God ordained for it to be accomplished. Sin needed to be dealt with. We see it all through the Old Covenant. And there is always this question of a substitute being offered in place by faith that I place my hand on the head of the sacrifice and he becomes my sin bearer and he bears the penalty that I deserved. Mm-hmm. And so that was justice. Right. And so now Yeshua, all of those things were simply pointers to Yeshua, right? And so the justice of God is carried out in this manner in the same way that it has been all through the Old Covenant. It's just that now the one ordained as lamb before the foundation of the world is in the place where he needed to be in order to bear the sins of the world. Good point. And, and, and I think that this is where the wisdom of God comes in because from looking at it from the wisdom of men or the world, that looks like an incredible injustice, right? But from the wisdom of God, it's the greatest act of salvation for all mankind ever. It is, you know, it is the redemptive event that allows us who have faith in Christ as our Redeemer, as our Savior, to have a conscience where we are we can not be separated from God by that grace. And you know, it's just the it it is how the wisdom of God sees justice in a way that we can't because of his vision of everything and over time. He's omniscient, omnipresent, and, you know, when we look at something, we go, oh, that's an injustice, you know. When we look at Joseph thrown in the pit, sold into slavery, you know, thrown into prison, it all looks like an injustice, but then when he ends up there, Pharaoh's right-hand guy, and can give salvation <laughs> to his brothers, you know, mm. in the famine and to his family, and provide the way for the nation of Israel to survive and to thrive, and you know, it. And then we see it all play out when they're set free and go in the desert. We see God's plan play out, you know. But in that immediate moment of time, throwing in the pit thrown into prison, all those things seem, they are injustices. They absolutely are injustices. There, There's all kinds of injustice that seemingly has gone unresolved. So, so let, 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 me, let me get to a, a discussion maybe we can have. The, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So let's, let's just think out loud for a minute. <clears throat> what we're talking about is how can I be forgiven and have a right standing with God? For uh, much of the conversation, it seems to boil down to how, do I, how, how can I know I'm going to heaven, right? So... So think of all the different, what are some of the different ways you've heard people say, uh, I'm sure God will take me to heaven? What, why do you think so? Good works. Good works, okay. Uh, I know that when I first heard the gospel, my reaction was, I'm a pretty decent guy, and there is absolutely nothing that I have done that's so bad that would keep me from going to heaven. I had the same thoughts. It's not even that I thought I had so many good works, just that I know I hadn't done anything really terrible. Okay. And, you know, really terrible boiled down to, well, I haven't, haven't killed anybody. And <laughs> well, I haven't, haven't, you know, stolen a whole lot of people's property. Uh, those, those kinds of things. Uh, there's, there's the idea that... So there's this balance of my good works outweigh my, my bad works, right? 
that that makes sense to us, you know, kind of quid pro quo uh, treatment of uh, uh, the way we do in our everyday living. That must be the way God operates. Right. That's one one thing. How? Yeah. Well, and and the opposite applies too. Like for me, you know, I'm like, uh, no, I'm I I've done too many bad things in my life. You know, I I can't just believe and have faith that Jesus died for my sin, and so through that faith I get the grace and I'm going to heaven. No, I, that, I just can't believe that because I've done too many bad things. So the opposite works uh-huh. the same way. Right, yeah. Or the idea, at least, I've done so many bad things, but there must be some way I can work it off. Yes. There must be some way I can pay this debt, right? So, so that is the worldly wisdom. Uh, you know, Certain religions teach about uh, if, you, if you can die a martyr, then you'll go directly into God's presence. All of these underestimate, significantly underestimate, how sinful sin is in the presence of a holy God. And how, you know, James makes this astonishing statement, to break the law in one point is to break the whole law. And there is no question of this sin is worse than that sin when we talk about breaking the law. Once you break the law, whether it's what we consider a big one or a little one, you've broken the law. You are a lawbreaker. And all of these different approaches to how can I be right with God seem so smart and wise to us because this is how we live our lives day to day. This is, this is, and so we just kind of project ourselves onto God. You know, it's funny about uh, so many people say, oh, you just are, are making up the God you want. Well, in fact, the God most people want is the kind of God that is like them. I think I'm a pretty fair shooter, you know, uh, and, and I'm sure that uh, I, I, I try to do things. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I make mistakes, but uh, they're not so bad, especially compared to Joe down there, right? <laughs> but God doesn't operate like that. And that's what Paul is saying here, that there's, there's this word of the cross. What is the word of the cross? You were guilty and deserved to die. I was guilty and deserved to die. We all are in this boat. We were guilty and deserved to die, but God took our guilt, uh, the, the acts and thoughts that we did to deserve that guilt. He put it all on Yeshua and was satisfied Propitiated. We haven't talked about propitiation in a long time. But God was satisfied with the sacrifice of his son, and all of sin is dealt with permanently at the cross. To go out and tell people that seems to be foolish to them because they're perishing. They are still in that place where they're depending on their own strength, their own wisdom, their own good works to get them right with God. So it is diametrically opposed, the preaching of the cross is diametrically opposed to the understanding and the wisdom of the world in this regard. Bob, you... Yeah, I, I like, um, when looking at the Jewish word or the Hebrew word for God, it's Tob or Tav that we talked about before, and and it means perfect and complete when it's assigned to God. And when I think about what God did and what he offered in in Yeshua or Jesus, is that he offered a perfect and complete sacrifice for eternity. No more annual animal sacrifices, once and for all, paid for all, for everybody. So the, the, the the perfect and complete sacrifice in Jesus allowed the Holy Spirit to come and indwell within us when we receive Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in a nutshell, he did it all for us. You know, you know, we have to accept his sacrifice by faith in order to receive it. But he, he loves us. That's why he did it for us. Right. But the preaching of the cross is folly. If to the world. To, to those who are outside of understanding it. Really. And, it and, and it's through what you just said, Bob, that, that, that the, the perfect and complete, 
complete sacrifice, the unblemished land, lamb, the um, that we all came into sin through one man, through Adam, and we all are what's saved from sin. What is the scripture that says through Yeshua? So there's like we're cursed through Adam. And we are saved through Yeshua. So it's it is you know you you know we can't understand God's accounting, but He gives us His picture and His affirmation that this accounting is justice. Mm -hmm. This is His justice. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make sense in our mind, maybe, but it is His justice, Mm -hmm. and it's perfect and complete, done for. Right. Yep. So not only is it justice, but Paul makes the point repeatedly through here, it is also God's wisdom and power. Okay? And so let me me skip down. He says, um, Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom. Okay? And that's what he's talking about. Uh, The world went its own way as far as wisdom goes. And there's... There's a long, long tradition of wisdom literature outside of the scripture as old or even older than our own uh, Proverbs and uh, Ecclesiastes, which are primary wisdom literature. Job is probably old. But the point is, Old Testament version of wisdom is quite different than what you find in other Near Eastern cultures. That wisdom (coughs) for the Old Testament uh, person is let me, let me just read it uh, <clears throat> it says it's distinct from other ancient worldviews although the format is similar um, in Old Testament wisdom we find reflected the teaching of a personal God who is holy and just and who expects those who know him to exhibit his character okay so that uh, one of the facts of Old Testament wisdom is it is not just a head thing but it is experiential. It must be carried out and practiced. And I would say that it can't be carried out and practiced without a right heart, right? Yeah. So, so this, is, this, this is the idea of wisdom that Paul's coming with, this idea of practical applied wisdom that comes from a holy, righteous, and just God who expects his people to act in the same way, yeah? So he says... The world did not know God through its wisdom, this knowledge base. You know, think, think of the wisdom of ancient Greece. You had Plato and Socrates, Aristotle. Uh, you know, wonderful uh, intellectual thinking, but except for Aristotle with his uh, ethics, uh, most of it was divorced from practice. Uh, it, it did not really address how to implement uh, and live practically in the world. Okay, that was not its goal. So the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. All right. So again, the, when he calls it the folly, it's as the world looks at it, it looks foolish. Uh, the Greek word behind the, the word folly and foolish in here is the word that we have today as moronic. <laughs> okay? Uh, that's how the world sees the preaching of the cross. But on this side, we see that the cross is actually the revelation of God's power and wisdom. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek after wisdom. And again, this is that kind of uh, chasing after knowledge for knowledge's sake. To be able to sit back and say, oh, what a smart boy I am. <clears throat> we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. That word stumbling block is the word scandalon. It's a scandal to Jewish people. And it is moronic to the Gentiles. But to those who are called Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, Messiah, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay, so this is the setup then that Paul is, is coming from when he talks in chapter 2 then why he did not come to them with lofty speech. I'm not here to try and impress you with flowing rhetoric, 
but rather I am here to simply preach Christ crucified, Messiah crucified. God was behind this amazing, amazing moment when the Son of God hung on a cross and God the Father dealt with sin by putting it on God the Son. What does Paul say in another place? He became the curse for us. He became the curse. He was cursed by God. But like Peter talks about uh, in, in Acts, in his sermon, quoting from Psalm 16, he would not let his Holy One see corruption. And even when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me at the beginning of Psalm 22, that also encompasses the end of Psalm 22 when he is dwelling forever with the Lord. So this is all encompassed in this wisdom of God that was completely unknown to mankind. It was needing to be revealed. And so Paul says, uh, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, because the cross is the fulfillment, the completion, the greatest expression of God's wisdom and power is all in this salvific event. And then because of the cross and for being united with Christ in faith, listen to what he says at the end of chapter 1. <clears throat> God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So he says to them, remember your calling, not many of you are wise, not many of you are strong, not many of you are rich. You were the world's off-scouring, he says, of himself in another place. You, you, you were nothing. But God chose you for that reason, so that none of us would boast and all the glory would belong to him. And now, because of him, you are in Messiah, in Messiah Yeshua, Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So when we are uh, lacking in wisdom, we need to understand that Christ has become our wisdom and we are in him. He is wisdom embodied, right? Uh, wisdom is an attribute, of God, an attribute of God, and Jesus has it in the fullness. And now we are in him. And so we can participate in God's wisdom by being in Christ. Now, there's obviously a lot of uh, outworkings to that, but that's kind of ought to be the starting place for us. When James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God without wavering. And I think that when I think of that verse, it, now it does connect us back to our Haftorah, to Solomon, what did he do? He lacked wisdom and he asked it from God. Did God give it to him? Yes. Can we look at Solomon as an example for ourselves? Say, hey, if Solomon asked and God gave it to him, why wouldn't he give it to me? Right? True. So I guess the question is, what, what exactly is wisdom? Is knowing and doing what is right before God? Knowing and doing what is right before God. I think, you know, as I was talking with Bob earlier, I did a lot of reading about wisdom coming into this, and there's a lot of high-flying academic talk in some of the books that I read sometimes, but you know what? Everything can be boiled down to what Bob just said, so say it again. Knowing and doing what is right before God. And how do we know what is right before God? We look at the scriptures. We, we search the scriptures. You know, in the scriptures, old and new covenants, God has revealed to us what he wants us to know in order to live godly lives that are pleasing to him. Everything we need to know has been embedded in these 66 books, we call them, right? In, in this canon of scripture is to be found all of the wisdom we need 
And wisdom is not just the head, but it's the heart and it's the practice. We find everything we need to live wise lives according to God's wisdom and not the wisdom of the world. You know, you just made something uh, earlier, Jerry, about, uh, about how the world looks at the gospel and how we as believers look at the gospel. And I was just thinking that, and you know, I can look at it, I, in my life I could see it both ways, that when, um, before I knew Jesus, I looked at, at the gospel as, as somewhat foolishness, you know, something some that somebody else would practice. But also, to some people, it can be a stench. Remember he talked about it before? But to know Jesus and to understand the gospel, it's an aroma to those that know him. And I think that's also a, a differing factor, that, mm-hmm. that, you know, the indwelling, the Holy Spirit that we have within us makes the biggest difference in the world. And, and Paul boils down, what was your definition of wisdom again, Bob? Knowing and doing what is right before God. And Paul boils that down to Christ and Christ crucified. Mm -hmm. That that is knowing and doing what is right before God. That we all need the cross because we all need salvation and redemption from our sins. And this was God's plan for redeeming us through the cross and if we're going to boast let us boast in the cross and Christ crucified the power of God the wisdom of God mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me throw something at you uh, that, that came up in this uh, book that I read uh, talking about this, this, this fact that the Old Testament wisdom contains this ethical dimension uh, you cannot be wise if you do not act according to the standard of righteousness and justice and morality that God reveals through the law, through Ten Commandments and then other places. Um, the, he ta- this talks about uh, the Greeks' understanding of wisdom, that uh, it was speculative wisdom that uh, if a person had perfect knowledge— he could live the good life. Knowledge was virtue, right? Wow. And sometimes I think that we live in a society that is pretty Greek in that respect. What do you often hear about uh, situations? Oh, if they just got some more education. <laughs> if they just had the right information, then those things wouldn't happen. He wouldn't act that way. She wouldn't do this. If she just had this piece of knowledge, when it's not an education problem, it's not a lack of knowledge problem, it's a moral problem. Yes, it is. It's an ethical problem. So we act like if we just put warning labels on cigarettes, people won't smoke. Or if we we publish information enough and and do enough uh, teaching uh, in school that kids won't do drugs or they won't do this or they won't do that. It's, it's not an education problem. I, I'm not sure it's a moral and an ethical problem. I think it's a pride problem because we all need the humility to know that we all are immoral. We all are unethical. We all break the law. You know, and this is mm-hmm. why it comes back to that the law condemns us. And having been condemned, there's only two ways to deal with our condemnation. We can be proud, justify it, rationalize it, you know, think our way through mm-hmm. it, try to deny it. Or we can be humble and submit and surrender that we need God's grace and his salvation through his wisdom, the cross. Yeah. It's A or B. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Of course, pride itself is an ethical problem. Yes. <laughs> right? I mean, we, that, that, that's the, the, the principal sin is I know better than God. Yes. Right? Uh, however, we understand it that uh, if we're, if we're going to be biblical people, God lays out the standard for us. 
and it's not just something that we give a, a mental assent to, that if we're going to be uh, truly acting in God's wisdom or living in God's wisdom, we have to act according to the standard that he's set forth. Wisdom, of course, is demonstrated in a variety of ways besides ethical situations. Uh, remember that God gave wisdom to the uh, craftsmen who put together the tabernacle. And God also gives wisdom to uh, government officials uh, and expects them to rule in wisdom. Of course, then we're talking about acting, uh, doing justice uh, according to, to uh God's, God's program, but they, it does come up in these other situations, I guess is, is my point. But the wisdom that we're looking at with uh, Joseph and then with Solomon are clearly uh, the interventions of, of God in pressing these, these matters. So um, maybe we can jump back to Joseph and see... See, uh, well, when, when, uh, <clears throat> you know, Pharaoh has his dreams, you know, that you talked about, mm -hmm. about the corn and the cows, and uh, they, they, they say the baker, I mean, the cupbearer says, well, there was this Hebrew in the jail, and he interpreted my dreams. In, in uh, Genesis 41, 16, right. it says, and Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, well, 15, it says, And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I've dreamed a dream, and there's none that can interpret it. And I've heard say of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. So, you know, he, Joseph is already under, I mean, already demonstrating wisdom. Mm-hmm. The wisdom of God. It's not my knowledge. It's not my works. It's God. He attributes it to God. And it's nice to see uh, this humility because there's a good chance that in his younger days with his brothers, he wasn't as humble as he is now, right? So that he has uh, been humbled by his situation and he is able to see uh, God in in uh, these things more clearly maybe than he would have earlier but absolutely giving credit credit to god the uh the dream is the same dream he says you saw seven fat cows and seven skinny cows seven good looking ears seven bad looking ears but it's the same dream you're going to have seven good years of uh production the 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 land is going to yield bumper crops and then you're going to experience seven years of famine and so he proposes that Pharaoh uh, establish a system of gathering crops, uh, banking against the future. And Pharaoh says, uh, I, I don't have anybody who seems to be as wise as you, and puts him in charge of all of that, right? Then, <clears throat> And he puts him in charge of it, and, and what he says uh, in uh, 41.38, and Pharaoh mm -hmm. said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Right. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, For as much as God has shown you all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou. And then he, he puts them over his house and tells them whatever you say to do, people right. are going to do. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, he has certainly he gains a tremendous amount of favor with Pharaoh. Bob made the point he's what about thirty here? Yeah, 30, thirty years old. Yes. Thirty. Thirty years old, and then 30, he 30 dies 30. at what age? Joseph. One ten. So he is like Pharaoh's right hand man for eighty years. Yes. And and yet the scripture really doesn't show that this power goes to his head in any way that he abuses it. That he uses it for his own gluttony or lustful desires or greed or I mean it it that's remarkable power doesn't corrupt him Absolutely. and 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 it and it's and it I think it speaks that 
either, like you said, Jerry, he's had some transformation of his heart, you know, since he was a youth, or, I mean, Pharaoh says the Spirit of God is in him, you know, and, and, and Joseph, I mean, clearly he's being, Joseph himself acknowledges it's God, Pharaoh says the Spirit of God, so there's something about Joseph that's, you know, revealing him as someone who is obedient and faithful. Yeah, but not only did Joseph interpret his dream, look look a little bit before on 34. It says, let Pharaoh do this. He gives him instruction, a direction. He says, uh, let him appoint overseers over the land and, and take one-fifth of the harvest of the land of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. Let them gather all the excess food during those seven years and and coming and store the grain in Pharaoh's authority as food for the cities. So all this, he's saying, you know, the, the famine's coming, and seven years of good is coming, then seven years of famine, but store up the food. Let, him, let overseers divide the food up in those seven years. So he's, he's given uh, Pharaoh the interpretation and the direction on what to do when, when, the, when the lean years come and be prepared. So mm-hmm. I think that also is from God. We would say that God has him strategically placed. Yes. <laughs> but the point I think that Lee is making, too, is, is this idea that Joseph has developed in such a way that uh, this wisdom is recognized as coming from God and is rewarded at a human level, if you will, by Pharaoh saying, look, who, who, who do I have who's as wise as you? I mean, you clearly are the man for the job. And, of course, behind that we see God's hand uh, moving. Yes. And, you know, the the evidence of this is in um, chapter 41, 51, 52, because Pharaoh gives uh, Joseph his daughter, right? Uh, No, it's uh, not his daughter. He gives him the daughter of a priest. Potiphar the priest, Mm -hmm. and that's in 50. And then he has two sons, and listen to what he calls his sons, because we've been pointing out how names are so important, the meaning of names, right? Yeshua means Mm -hmm. salvation, right? And Joseph called the name of of the firstborn Manasseh, for God and the, and what that means is for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. So this is now before his brothers come. So right. he's he's saying something about his internal state of mind regarding what happened to him in his father's house. So for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house in the name of the second son called he Ephraim. For God hath made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very powerful. So he's had, he has had, he's had, he demonstrates a forgiving heart. And, you know, I think before we came on the air, uh, Jerry, you were talking about just reconciliation requiring forgiveness. And at least unveiling injustice, you know, shining light on injustice. And I think, you know, the, the rest of this story now that in this Parsha is really about Joseph interacting with his brothers and, you know, about uh, uh, reconciliation and, you know, the injustice and the forgiveness. So we just have uh, about seven or eight minutes left to conversate here. Um, Let's try and pull that piece of the story that we have there there's more to the story that we'll get to next week again uh but when joseph names his first son manasseh uh and i've forgotten my father's house uh, maybe he didn't suspect at that point that he was going to have a reckoning with his brothers uh but circumstances uh 
forced the reckoning. And the famine came, as predicted, and eventually it affected the land of Canaan where Jacob and his other sons lived. And they heard that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob sent his sons to go get some. So the first time, he, Jacob sends the ten brothers without Benjamin. He right. keeps Benjamin home. And, uh, you know, in that first time, they come, and Joseph sees who they are, okay, and they come to Joseph and bow down to him with their faces to the earth. And, and Joseph saw them and knew who they were, but Joseph hid who he was to his brother. And then he puts them through this test of their heart to see, have they changed in this time? And he first he calls them spies and that you're coming to spy our land out. And, you know... They they say uh, to him, <clears throat> well, Joseph says, and he put them all together into ward three days, and Joseph said unto them the third day, this do and live, for I fear God. So Joseph is saying something about them, and he says, if if you're upright men, bring your youngest brother to me, and I'm going to keep Simeon, right, to see that, you know, you come back. And so he gives them corn, gives them back their money, sends back, they go back to Jacob, and that's the first time around, right? Yes, and but we don't want to leave out the fact that they have a conversation among themselves in Hebrew that they don't realize Joseph can understand in verse uh, 21. Yeah. This is after he says, bring your youngest brother, because remember, Benjamin is Joseph's brother of the same mother. Right. Right? All these other boys are somebody else's mother, right? So he, wa he wants to see his, his full brother. So he says, bring back the brother. And of course, Benjamin is the one Jacob's trying to protect at this point. This is the only piece of Rachel I have left, Right. So he says, bring your youngest brother, and uh, <clears throat> you shall not die. Um, he then they say in verse 21, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we didn't listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Verse 22, Reuben answered them, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you didn't listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They didn't know that Joseph could understand because he'd been using an interpreter. So here is... And then, so go on and read 23 and 24 because it's so powerful. They didn't know Joseph understood them. There was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them, bound him before their eyes. And so he keeps Simeon uh, as a uh, hedge against their needing to return. But the fact that he is moved by what he hears from them is an indication that he recognizes that there has been some change. He doesn't know the full extent of it, but they are owning their guilt in what they did to Joseph. Mm -hmm. Very good. And and then after he gives them their money back, the corn and the money, and they find that their money is in their sack in 28, it says, And their heart failed them, and they turned trembling one to another, saying, What is this that God has done unto us? Mm -hmm. So you can see that these boys, these other brothers, have have... They've changed from the last time we saw mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. They're talking about yeah. some fear of God. They're talking about some contrition and repentance. So it's, it's a good place here, I think, uh, to define wisdom from the scriptural point of view. And it says in several different places, um, Proverbs 4, Psalm 111, uh, Job 28, that the fear of Hashem, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. 
And without having that reverential awe for God, you cannot enter into godly wisdom. And that's what we see exhibited here. That's what Paul was talking about too, that you can't have this wisdom, uh, this faith in, in Messiah if you don't have a fear of the Lord to begin with. If you think you're just going to show up before God and say, hey, here I am, everything's great, in front of a holy, just God, just as you are, <laughs> uh, without that fear of the Lord, then you are not operating in God's wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so uh, we see Joseph clearly acknowledging, I fear God, but we see that attitude coming out in the way the brothers are talking as well. You know, there's this guilt acknowledgement. There's this sense of, of, of judgment that they, they, they're expressing when they say, what has God done to us in putting the money back in the sacks? When they get home, of course, they tell Jacob, the only way we can go back and get Simeon is if you send Benjamin. And he says, uh, no, I don't want to do that. Bob. Yeah, what I like, this is, this is so human, so much like me, whatever. But, he, but God and Joseph are, is working in the background to save the nation of Israel. And this is what on 16 it says, uh, Their father Jacob, Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of one of my sons. Joseph is gone and Simeon is gone. Now they want to take Benjamin. Everything happens to me. Another translation says, everything is against me. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, God is working in the background to save them. And so on, on the surface and what we see can be very different from what God's doing for us. Sure, because no doubt when he said everything is against me, he was thinking God too. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we start to feel that way when things are hard and things aren't going our way, and we wish we... Uh, could could run things because we'd do a better job than God, right? We 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 respond in, in similar fashion. So they go back. Uh, where where are we at? Um, so 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 the fa- the famine gets so severe finally that uh, Jacob has to agree to send Benjamin. And we're really kind of out of time here to talk about all of the ins and outs of, of that exchange. But let's, let's, let's focus these, these last couple minutes here on this idea of, of reconciliation and how it connects to the wisdom of God. Because God is the one who says in the psalm, has the psalmist write, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Let's think about Yeshua on the night that he was betrayed and that long uh, prayer that he makes in John chapter 17. What does he pray? That they may be one, Father, as you and I are one, right? That there is something that is expressive of God's wisdom when brothers, and we'll say sisters, live together in unity because it requires each of those brothers and sisters to walk humbly before God. What does God require of you? To love mercy, do justice. We can't do justice without the wisdom of God to know what is the right and the wrong and to walk humbly with your God. Lee. Yeah, and and I I think we are, you know, last time we were talking about um, Jacob uh, wrestling with God and having pride and Yeshua in the Garden of Gethsemane, the contrast. And here we see in uh, 4314, Jacob having undergone a transformation of his heart because he's saying, okay, I'm going to let you take Benjamin. But he says, and God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release unto you your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, Jacob saying, as for me, if I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So he's showing this humble submission and asking for God's mercy. And that is very different than when he wrestled with God. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to uh, close it off here. If you are feeling alienated, needing reconciliation, 
Uh, the wisdom of God says, submit yourself to God in the fear of the Lord. Uh, the one who loves you, who sent his son to die for you, and promises that you will be forgiven, you will be made a member of Messiah's body, and you will be reconciled first to God, and then through his activity in your life, uh, he is going to bring reconciliation to all of your broken places through justice and through forgiveness. So if that's where you are, you wanna be reconciled to God through faith in Yeshua, would you just pray this simple prayer? Father in heaven, I acknowledge that I am a sinner and I am in need of your grace. Thank you that you sent grace and mercy and forgiveness in the life, death, and resurrection of Yeshua. I ask you to forgive me as I put my faith in him. I trust him to be my savior. And I thank you that you have forgiven me entirely in him and through him. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.